Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. Wilhelm II, Part 2 From 1890 to 1914, Kaiser Wilhelm II struggled through a series of scandals and crises. Throughout this time, his relations with his British relatives continued in a bizarre fashion. One moment he was antagonistic and threatening, the champion of the world against the British Empire, the next he was making extraordinary efforts to charm, and then glorying in his honorary commissions in the British Navy and Army. Within a family, this type of behavior could be exhausting and vexing. However, when the family is made up of heads of state, even if they may be more nominal than actual, the implications of such family drama can be far more problematic. Understanding this dynamic, his grandmother, Queen Victoria, did her best to deal with him diplomatically. Even as Wilhelm sought to frustrate her government politically, she knew he craved her approval. As each new feud erupted, it was not unusual for her to forbid him to attend family gatherings in England as a way of expressing her disappointment as a grandmother and as a fellow sovereign. Wilhelm also had a difficult relationship with Queen Victoria's son, his uncle Bertie, the Prince of Wales. Already the German Kaiser, Wilhelm expected to be treated as such. He felt he outranked his more cosmopolitan uncle and went to great lengths to demonstrate this. Kaiser or not, Bertie, the future King Edward VII, had a very low opinion of Wilhelm and generally found ways to treat him like a nephew or avoid him altogether. Military conflicts were a particular point of contention within the family. During the Boer War, Wilhelm openly lauded early Boer victories over the British. Queen Victoria was furious, and the amazement of the British press quickly turned into open hostility towards the Kaiser. After Queen Victoria wrote to him of the unfavorable impression he was making in England, he responded that he meant no offense and was truly a great friend of England. Then he playfully alluded to the alliance of Great Britain and Prussia during the Napoleonic Wars and chided his grandmother, What would the Duke of Wellington and Old Blucher say if they saw this? Despite this conciliatory tone, he was also writing to his uncle Bertie, urging the British to accept defeat. Tone deaf, he wrote, Last year, in the great cricket match of England versus Australia, the former took the latter's victory quietly, with chivalrous acknowledgement of her opponent. Furious and not interested in his nephew's advice, Bertie responded, I am afraid I am unable to share your opinions, in which you liken our conflict with the Boers to our cricket matches with the Australians. And yet, despite drama of this sort, when Wilhelm heard Queen Victoria was dying, he rushed to England and cradled his grandmother as she was dying. His British relatives were cautiously optimistic about his good behavior, and the British press remarked favorably on how well he stood in the role of a bereaved grandson. But as usual, he was soon out of favor again. It wasn't just family problems, though, that were dogging Wilhelm. He was also prone to terrible gaffes that left the German Foreign Office struggling to reinterpret or conceal his actions. In 1900, he gave his famous speech to German soldiers who were heading to China to intervene in the Boxer Rebellion. 
The speech is known today as the Hun speech, and it would later be a great source of Allied propaganda during World War I. Even for the late 19th century, the speech was incredibly chauvinistic and militaristic. Wilhelm told his troops, "Should you encounter the enemy, he will be defeated. No quarter will be given. Prisoners will not be taken. Whoever falls into your hands is forfeited." Just as a thousand years ago, the Huns under their king Attila made a name for themselves, one that even today makes them seem mighty in history and legend. May the name German be affirmed by you in such a way in China that no Chinese will ever again dare to look cross-eyed at a German. Horrified, the Kaiser's government worked hard to suppress this part of the speech. Wilhelm was not pleased and complained to his ministers that they had removed the best parts. Soon, however, the international press obtained the full text of the speech and circulated it throughout the world. As his government had feared, the Kaiser had made Germany look like a nation of barbarians. During the Moroccan crisis of 1905, Wilhelm once again blundered, making a visit to Tangier, Morocco, an area where the French were rapidly expanding their influence. The Kaiser publicly declared his intention to stand against French colonialism and to support the Sultan of Morocco. The French were furious over this provocation, and for a while in the summer of 1905, it seemed like France and Germany would go to war over the issue. In 1906, the 13-nation Algeciras Conference was scheduled to settle the disagreement. In the end, France's claim over Morocco was upheld, and Great Britain proved to be the leading supporter of France at the conference. The Kaiser's bombast the previous year had only resulted in one thing. Absolute proof to the international community that the newly adopted Entente Cordiale between France and Great Britain was real, but the conference demonstrated more than just the bonds of this treaty. Of the thirteen nations at the Algeciras conference, only one of them, Austria-Hungary, sided with Germany. Through policy and through the Kaiser's missteps, Germany was clearly alienating itself. In 1911, the Kaiser once again tried to intervene in the same area. When word of a rebellion broke out in Morocco, a German gunboat appeared off the coast of Agadir, ostensibly to protect German business interests. The British feared that Germany planned to use the crisis to carve out a naval base at Agadir. At the time, both nations were engaging in a naval arms race, and Agadir would have challenged the British naval base at Gibraltar. Just as in the case of the first Moroccan crisis, this new problem was once again resolved diplomatically, with Germany getting some land in Africa in return for France being recognized as the dominant power in Morocco. Once again, Germany had pushed the once enemies Great Britain and France together. The most damaging gaffe, however, came in 1908 when the Kaiser gave an interview to the British newspaper The Daily Telegraph. In a wild, emotional interview, the Kaiser said a number of impolitic things that alienated the British, French, Russians, and Japanese. He called the British people "mad as March hares" for always worrying about Germany and always criticizing him. He implied that Germany's naval expansion had nothing to do with Great Britain and was really intended to counter the Japanese and possibly the Chinese. He also explained that the German people despised the British. And that Russia and France had asked him to intervene in the Second Boer War against the British. 
he sounded foolish and dangerously out of touch. The most damaging part, though, was that the article was printed in German papers as well. For the first time, many Germans realized he was somewhat of a loose cannon, if not an embarrassment. In the Reichstag, he was excoriated. For months, he kept a low profile. The experience left him in a deep depression. Damaged so terribly, he was never able to exercise as much influence domestically ever again. Added to the Kaiser's family difficulties and serious missteps on the international stage were a series of scandals involving the Kaiser and his inner circle. In 1908, the Kaiser was at a hunting lodge with friends and close advisors. Part of the entertainment for the evening involved a dance by the Kaiser's military secretary, dressed in a ballet tutu. While so attired, the man collapsed and died of a heart attack in the middle of the performance. The episode reinforced a growing perception of homosexuality within the Kaiser's inner circle. While shocking, it was just one of a series of such scandals that rocked the monarchy, army, and the government. Between 1907 and 1909, a number of members of the Kaiser's inner circle were publicly accused of homosexuality and were then involved in very lurid court cases that damaged the public perception of the military and government. One of the accused was Prince Philip of Eulenburg, one of the Kaiser's closest friends and a man who wielded extraordinary power behind the scenes of the government. He was accused of homosexuality and of liaisons with other members of the Kaiser's inner circle. For years, Eulenburg had cultivated a friendship with the Kaiser, providing him with emotional support when it came to his English relatives and providing him with amusements calculated to abate his restlessness. While the Kaiser's sexuality was not questioned, worried about the perceived legitimacy and morality of his government, he was quick to denounce Eulenburg and other friends that were accused during this time. As he cut off these friends, he suffered two nervous breakdowns. Some historians have viewed the destruction of his inner circle at this time as unfortunate, particularly in the case of Eulenburg. Eulenburg was completely devoted to the monarchy and to the unconstitutional personal rule of the Kaiser, but he was also said to be one of the most moderating influences on the Kaiser, and a man who understood how dangerous the Kaiser's need for approval was, as well as how dangerous his constant vacillations could be on the world stage. In the midst of all these troubles, Europe inched closer and closer to war. In May of 1913, Wilhelm hosted the last great gathering of European royalty before the Great War. It was the wedding of his only daughter, Princess Victoria Louise. It was to be the last time many of the royal relatives would meet again. At the end of June 1914, Wilhelm was in Kiel to participate in a sailing regatta that included a Royal Navy squadron. Suspicious that the British might try to steal military secrets or technology from his ships, he refused to allow any foreign guests aboard. As he did this, he would also comment on the never-failing comradeship and hospitality present in all of his dealings with the Royal Navy. Wilhelm was aboard his yacht, the Hohenzollern, on 2.30 p.m. on June 28, 1914, when he received word that the Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie had been murdered in Sarajevo. Wilhelm was shocked. The Archduke had been one of his friends. Although they had not seen eye to eye on every issue, 
Wilhelm explained to the British ambassador that the Archduke's death was unfortunate because the two of them had planned out the future of Europe together. Now, those plans were ruined. Wilhelm immediately returned to Berlin to take the crisis in hand. Over the next two days, though, he followed a very routine schedule. He spent hours on July 1st discussing the interior design of a new yacht he was building. He also spent considerable amount of time debating whether or not he should still take his annual Norwegian cruise that was scheduled for July 6th. There was no sense of urgency or fear of a wider conflict erupting. As his government ministers attempted to deal with the tensions in the Balkans, he did return to the regatta and later embarked on his Norwegian cruise. Meanwhile, his ministers tried to avoid taking any actions that would encourage him to return to Berlin or to recall the fleet. These actions might alarm the other powers by making them think Germany was preparing for war. On July 26, though, after hearing that Serbia had mobilized its army, the Kaiser, fearing Russia would do the same, ordered the fleet home to Germany. The Kaiser returned on the 27th, and early on the 28th, he read Serbia's response to Austria's ultimatum. He believed that Serbia's response was satisfactory and that war had been averted. Then Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia, triggering a domino effect of mobilizations and declarations of war. Russia mobilized in the east in support of Serbia, and Germany soon did the same to join its ally Austria-Hungary. The Kaiser vacillated in these days. At one moment he wanted peace, at others he blustered for war. He exchanged a number of telegrams with his British cousin, King George V, and his Russian cousin, Tsar Nicholas II. He asked them for guarantees of neutrality, or to ignore German mobilization, and intimated that Russia and or Great Britain would bear the responsibility if war happened. These messages came to nothing. Historian Sir Max Hastings describes the Kaiser during this period as trying to play the warrior emperor while being chronically uncertain what this required. He was forever snatching at the wrong cue or delivering misplaced lines. Prussian Minister of War Erich von Falkenhayn, in particular, sought to silence the Kaiser's vacillations about war. He reminded Wilhelm that war was now inevitable and that the Kaiser no longer had a say in the matter. Thus, on the eve of the war, the German general staff effectively asserted its primacy over any other institution in Germany. On August 1, 1914, Germany declared war on Russia. France mobilized the next day, and soon German troops were invading Luxembourg on their way west. Belgium was next. Germany's invasion of neutral Belgium as a passage into France at the start of the war brought the British into the war on the side of the Allies. Wilhelm's British relatives immediately stripped him of any British honors he had received. At the same time, the Kaiser, always a lover of uniforms and honorary commissions in the British military, had his once-coveted British Admiral of the Fleet and Field Marshal uniforms dumped off at Buckingham Palace. Technically, under the terms of the German Constitution, the Kaiser was the leader of the army, the Supreme Warlord. The army did not report to the government, it was his army alone. In the years leading up to the war, he had envisioned himself as the man who would lead the army into battle. The German general staff laughed behind his back. 
For more than a decade, most of the senior military officers had subscribed to the late Count Alfred von Waldersee's opinion that the Kaiser could not lead three soldiers over a gutter. There were, however, fears that the Kaiser might, in fact, try to lead the army. As a precaution, the general staff took great pains to ensure that Wilhelm got nowhere near the battlefield. On August 16, 1914, the imperial headquarters of the German army was established at Koblenz, far from the actual action. The Kaiser took up residence in the castle, and awkwardly, the general staff occupied other buildings and even other towns. This made for poor communications and resulted in Moltke, the nominal commander of the German army, being far from the front lines. But it did keep Wilhelm from interfering in operations. Most of these worries were unwarranted. Within a week, the new supreme warlord of Germany had a nervous collapse and informed the general staff that war was their responsibility, not his. Moltke was given permission to issue any necessary orders in the Kaiser's name. The Kaiser did not even control the navy he had obsessively built. As he told Admiral Georg von Müller, he was a man who had no idea whether he would survive from one day to the next, so he did not want to be burdened with the details of naval policy. Wilhelm's wife and generals actively conspired to keep him in the dark about events. He received briefings each day, but these tended to ignore reverses and any negative news. These briefings did not include anything about strategies for the future. As the war ground on, Wilhelm came to resent yet admire men like General Erich Ludendorff and German Chief of Staff Paul von Hindenburg. He also feared their influence. Despite being carefully managed by those around him, for the rest of the war, the Kaiser alternated between euphoria and deep depression. The Austrian Foreign Minister believed he was a prisoner of his generals. No one could save him from this. For most of his reign, he had successfully kept the army beyond parliamentary control. Now it was an institution virtually independent from the government. The Kaiser was, as historian Miranda Carter describes, merely a flimsy fig leaf for a Germany ruled by a military dictatorship. Although marginalized, the Kaiser served as an important figurehead and source of solidarity for many. That changed in October of 1918, when Wilhelm lost the support of the military and the people of Germany after years of bloody war and struggle on the home front. With America involved in the war, and with President Woodrow Wilson saying there would be no peace talks with a monarch or a military dictatorship, the Kaiser was now an impediment to ending the devastating war. He was at his military headquarters in Belgium when word came that there were uprisings throughout Germany. This was followed by a mutiny of his naval forces and rumors of rampant dissatisfaction in the German army. As always, the Kaiser could not decide what to do. On November 9th, while Wilhelm debated his options, German Chancellor Max von Baden announced that the Kaiser and his son, the Crown Prince, were renouncing the throne. As he had not yet decided what to do, William was furious. He was then encouraged by his military staff to find refuge in the Netherlands, but he initially refused. He was only convinced to leave the country when news came that the army was no longer loyal to him. On November 10th, he boarded a train to the Netherlands and to permanent exile. The war ended the next day. At the end of the war, his cousin King George V wrote of him. 
No one man can dominate the world. It has been tried before, and now he has utterly ruined his country and himself, and I look upon him as the greatest criminal known for having plunged the world into this ghastly war with all its misery. This attitude was shared by many. The Treaty of Versailles provided for his prosecution after the war, but the Netherlands refused to extradite him, and President Woodrow Wilson staunchly opposed such a prosecution mostly because he believed that such a trial would do damage to the embryonic German democracy that was emerging. Wilhelm lived a fairly quiet life in the Netherlands. In 1922, he wrote his autobiography, which was a salvo at those who blamed him for the Great War. He also watched with satisfaction the decline and increasing instability of the fledgling Weimar Republic. In the 1930s, he watched the rise of the Nazis with particular interest. At the start, he was convinced that Hitler was a monarchist who would help him return to power. He was troubled, however, by the involvement of some of his sons in the Nazi party and their apparent maneuvering for power. In 1932, Wilhelm warned his son Oscar that if any of his sons attempted to seize the throne ahead of him, he would expel them from the family. Soon, however, it became apparent that Hitler had no intention of restoring the monarchy. Relations between Wilhelm and the Nazis cooled, but when Hitler started World War II, Wilhelm relished the German victories, believing them to be ordained for the settling of old scores. Writing to his sister in 1940, Wilhelm was in raptures, describing the growing Nazi hegemony as the start of a German-dominated United States of Europe. When Hitler invaded the Netherlands, Wilhelm was offered sanctuary by the British government. He bluntly refused, explaining he would rather be shot than have to take a photograph with Winston Churchill, and that the offer was just a temptation of Satan. When German troops arrived at his house, he was delighted by the patrol sent to guard him. Hitler still had no intention of restoring the monarchy, though, and this remained a point of contention. Ironically, as Wilhelm's anti-Semitism became more pronounced, his mistrust and dislike of the Nazis also increased. On June 4, 1941, Wilhelm died at the age of 82. The Nazis viewed this as an extraordinary opportunity to forever bury the monarchy and the Second Reich. In 1933, Wilhelm had requested a private funeral in the Netherlands, if he had not been restored to the monarchy. He also wanted no Nazi emblems present. Hitler ignored this. On June 9, 1941, Wilhelm was buried in the Netherlands and accompanied to the grave by a retinue of Nazis. Photographs show Nazi emblems present. From the great hope of Europe at his birth to a public relations coup for the Nazis in death, Wilhelm seemed to forever struggle for identity while failing to meet the expectations of those around him. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.